Hello, welcome to Basecamp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is the show that gives you insights and resources on how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. Hello, base campers. I hope you're all doing well. Today's episode is a reading of a Substack article I saw from Dr. Michael Turner, MD. I thought it would be interesting to to do a voiceover to this article. It pairs well with last week's episode on Western medicine. The article is on Substack and is titled Losing My Vaccine Religion, A Doctor's Journey from Hope to Despair by Dr. Michael Turner, MD. Enjoy. Act 1, Grief. I am a doctor with a troubled conscience. I am a friend with a heavy heart. January 2021, I am standing next to an open grave. Rays of sun cannot cheer the depths of pain and loss in my heart. The body of my dear friend Bruce is being lowered to its final resting place. Sobs from his eldest daughter fill the air. Age 79 and dead from COVID. Just a few weeks earlier, we shared laughs and bear hugs over Thanksgiving dinner. Doctor, what do you think of this virus, was the topic of conversation across the table. Bruce was a good man, a special man, the kind of guy who found a way to connect with everyone he met. He had the gift of gab and a way of interacting that made people feel accepted and value. The fabric of humanity suffered a tear that day, and as I marked the occasion, I couldn't help but think, damn it, if he had just been able to hold out a few months until the vaccine arrived. It felt cosmically unjust, like sinking under the waves just moments moments before the lifeguard arrived. March 2021, vaccine arrival. I greet the news of the vaccine with all the due medical and patriotic enthusiasm, a ray of hope, and a balm for the psyche of a country battered by the pandemic and political strife. Operation Warp Speed had delivered the goods, cutting-edge technology poised to prime our bodies for the fight of our lives. I dutifully rolled up my sleeve and received my first Pfizer, repeating again six, six weeks later. No ill effects other than a bit of malaise and a sore deltoid for a few days. I was glad to have this available and recommended it far and wide to patients. Act 2, Following the Science and Questioning the Narrative. Quote, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, unquote. The passage of time brought medical and social concerns, mandates, get vaccinated or get fired. Whatever role the vaccines still have, such as with high-risk populations or nursing home residents, etc., etc., they have risks. And just as with any medical intervention, should only be recommended based on individualized risk-benefit analysis with proper informed consent. Mandates and travel requirements sounded aggressive to me, but this was force-fed to us as a necessary public health response. Desperate times called for desperate measures. Unvaccinated people were spreading the virus and endangering us all. Ignorance and personal choice were one thing. Selfishness at the expense of others was entirely different. My mind held an uneasy peace. But as time wore on and my investigations continued, my equilibrium was disturbed and the tidy ends of this story began to unravel. Plot twist number one. Vaccinated people are just as infectious as unvaccinated. Turns out that leaked CDC data revealed vaccinated people developed viral loads that were just as high. Read here, he provides links, prompting this juicy quote from Dr. Fauci, quote, you can make a reasonable assumption that vaccinated people can transmit the virus just like unvaccinated people can, unquote. 
Then a UK study, which followed households for 12 months to track infection rates, confirmed that peak viral loads did not differ by vaccination status, and then concluded with this bombshell, you were just as likely to catch COVID from a vaccinated family member as from an unvaccinated one. Meanwhile, back in Seattle, my sister-in-law was neighbor-shamed into getting vaccinated, despite her hesitations and medical comorbidities, because the parents of her three-year-old son's best friend wouldn't let the kids play together until she got the shot. Plot twist number two, the vaccines don't work very well at this point. Understand that the vaccines have not been updated since this entire pandemic began. That's right, folks. The vaccines still being administered are against the original Wuhan strain, which, of course, is no longer in circulation. We're now dealing with version 4.0, Wuhan, Alpha, Delta, and now Omicron and its variants. And with each generation, vaccine efficacy has weakened. Comparative example, how excited would you be about getting the flu shot from four years ago? And to be fair, the same problem of declining protection against new variants is also seen with natural immunity. So the vaccines still appear to offer some benefit, but not enough to make my heart race. Even more worrisome is the potential that paradoxically, they may make it easier to contract these newer strains. He provides a link in the article. Plot twist number three. The spike protein produced by the vaccine is actually toxic to our vascular and nervous system. At first, we thought the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein was benign, just a thing the virus uses to gain access to our cells. But it turns out the spike protein is highly toxic, damaging the lining of our blood vessels, predisposing us to blood clots and provoking inflammation and tissue damage wherever it is found. So what are we to make of the fact that the vaccines instruct our cells to produce high levels of spike protein? Concerning? Pfizer, Moderna, and Novavax all create production of full-length spike proteins, and this paper, with link provided, clearly states that full-length proteins trigger vascular damage in lung tissue. Furthermore, these spike proteins are known to circulate widely after injection. But isn't the structure of the vaccine-produced spike protein different? Outstanding question. So glad you asked. Yes, it has some slight structural differences, but not in any way that has been proven to make it less toxic. As mentioned above, it is full-length spike proteins, and those are known to be damaging. Furthermore, it is capable of being cleaved and released the S1 subunit, which is the exact same subunit as the natural virus, and which is known to cause a host of serious problems, including blood clots and destruction of cell membranes. This paper, with link provided, shows pictures of S1 subunits from spike proteins causing blood platelets to clump and activate. And this intrepid doctor and lawyer took before and after pictures with a microscope of what happens when the Pfizer vaccine touches a sample of blood. And here we read how this S1 subunit is a toxin that directly damages cell membranes. Thus, the CDC is entirely inaccurate when it describes the spike protein as, quote, a harmless piece of protein, unquote. Of course, a natural SARS-CoV-2 infection also brings its own spike protein burden, but this is predicted to be less extensive in amount and duration than the vaccine-induced burden, since the vaccine mRNA has been engineered to resist degradation so as to create a super-potent burst of spike protein production. Plot twist number four. These spike proteins in vaccine nanoparticles travel far from the original site of injection. At first, we were told the vaccine stayed localized to the site of injection. Turns out they've got more wheels than a teenager with a new car and a hot date. 
We know that the vaccines release SARS-CoV-2 spike proteins into general circulation. We now know from Pfizer's own data submitted to Japanese regulators that mRNA vaccines travel far from the site of local injection, creating visible uptake in the spleen, liver, ovaries, and adrenal glands of the experimental animals. Meanwhile, the number one Google search result when you type in do the COVID mRNA vaccines travel in my body is a flat, bolded push to you. There is no evidence that any mRNA or protein accumulates in any organ. This is according to Google. That's curious, says the good doctor, because these scientists isolated viral mRNA and spike proteins from lymph node biopsies 60 days after injection. The consequences of the vaccine traveling to distant organs, including the ovaries, raise grave concern for women's health. We know that polyethylene glycol, an ingredient found in the Pfizer and Moderna injections, has been found to pose a potential toxicity risk to women's ovaries. And we know that 30,000 women in Britain have reported menstrual changes after receiving the vaccine. As regards to lactation, we know there is a theoretical basis for transmission via breast milk, and we even have a mainstream medical experts admitting that, quote, these conversations are challenging because Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine trial excluded lactating individuals. As a result, there is no clinical data regarding the safety of this vaccine in nursing mothers, unquote. Plot twist number five, vaccine injury reports have exploded. The CDC boldly states that, quote, COVID-19 vaccines have undergone and will continue to undergo the most intensive safety monitoring in U.S. history, unquote. Really? Hmm. Does the, quote, unquote, most intensive safety monitoring in U.S. history include being rushed to market under emergency use authorization while using the populace as a giant phase three clinical trial, often under coercion? The discrepancy and shortcomings of the Pfizer data are painstakingly and damningly laid out in this censored video, link provided. Does it include the FDA siding with Pfizer in a freedom of information request in which they wanted 75 years to fully disclose their raw data for independent analysis? Read Dr. Doshi's cogent plea for transparency here, link provided. Does it include the CDC dismissing vaccine injury data reported to the VAERS Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System as follows, quote, reports of death after COVID-19 vaccination are rare, unquote. Really? Because this data from the VAERS project doesn't look rare to me. If you've not heard of it, you need to be aware of the VAERS Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting Database. This was established by Congress in 1990 and meant to serve as a warning system of potential vaccine side effects. They show the, the deaths reported by, to VAERS year by year, and it is massively spiked. Post-vaccination post deaths reported to the U.S. VAERS system, 1990 to November 2021. And the CDC attempts to reassure us, quote, FDA requires healthcare providers to report any death after COVID-19 vaccination to VAERS, even if it's unclear whether the vaccine was the cause. Reports of adverse events to VAERS following vaccination, including deaths, does not necessarily necessarily mean that a vaccine caused a health problem. Ah, that's better. So who else feels calm and at peace now? Correlation is not necessarily causation. I get it. But this that is definitely not reassuring now, is it? And let's just say that the barn door to causation is flung wide open. In my opinion, 30,479 deaths as of August 29, 2022, should prompt serious, urgent, and meaningful investigation. 
For that, I commend you to Jessica Rose, Ph.D., who produced a definitive interview on VAERS risk, Link concluded. Oh, and it's not just the VAERS database sending us these signals. As a superlative article from Dr. Pierre Corey elaborates, life insurance, Medicare, and even German health insurance claims all report a surge in deaths, not just since COVID, but COVID, but specifically since the vaccine rollout. Simple question. If they are so safe, why do the vaccine manufacturers need total legal immunity from any potential harm? Simple question, base campers. Can you handle the truth? Intermission. I present for your consideration, dear listeners, these documented side effects of the vaccine. And for you citizen journalists and curious types, there's links for each one of these with studies from doctors and scientists. Number one, blood clots. Number two, multi-system inflammatory disease. Number three, reactivation of dormant viral infections. Number four, dramatic alterations in gene expression of almost all immune cells. Number five, reduction of CD8 T cells and type 1 interferon response, therefore increasing cancer risk. Number six, reprogramming the immune system and reducing response to toll-like receptors TLR4, TLR7, and TLR8. Number seven, triggering of underlying autoimmune conditions. And eight, potential to create worse subsequent infections due to antibody-dependent enhancement. In fact, just prior to widespread vaccine rollout, this Chinese virologist warned us, Link included, against hasty deployment and suggested carefully investigating possible safety concerns. Act 3. It gets personal. But enough about numbers and data. Let's talk about real individual people like my family like my 23-year-old daughter, a healthy nursing student who, after her mandatory vaccine, complains of persistent difficulty with concentration and memory, or my 17-year-old daughter's friend, last year a district champion long-distance runner, this year struggling to complete workouts due to persistent chest pain, or my former in-law who was doing well until breast cancer came out of remission just after her second vaccine and quickly overwhelmed her. Ditto for the dear woman who hosted me as a high school exchange student 30 years ago. 30 years ago and became a second mother to me. Her funeral was just last month. Quick question, class. Raise your hand if you personally know someone who has had a serious vaccine side effect. I know I have. So where is the vigorous, open, honest, urgent, strident, outraged national discussion of this situation? Tens of thousands of people are potentially being injured or dying prematurely, and this is not talked about every night on the news or in some regular CDC press briefing? What is going on? Act 4. Censorship and excommunication. Turns out you can't talk openly about vaccine risks. Any candid discussion of risks, even by credentialed experts speaking in their field of study, has been censored because, quote, encouraging vaccine hesitancy, unquote, has become a thought crime. And in the name of, quote, unquote, combating COVID misinformation, the government and media have displayed a dazzling level of cooperation. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Indeed. In the new state-sponsored public health religion, to raise these concerns is to commit the unpardonable sin. The result? As in the worst extremes of religious extremism, the self-righteously smug authorities summarily execute judgment. Your social media accounts will disappear, your interviews will vanish from YouTube, your credibility will be maligned, and your employment and livelihood will be threatened. Cancel culture sucker-punched modern medicine, and the poor white coats never knew what hit them. Do I exaggerate? 
Do an internet search for Robert Malone, M.D., Pierre Corey, M.D., Paul Merrick, M.D., Didier Raoul, M.D., or Ryan Cole. Or how about Luke Montagne, Ph.D., Michael Yeadon, Ph.D., Byram Bridal, Ph.D., or Jessica Rose, Ph.D.? Tell me what you find. There's a reason half these brave souls ended up on Substack. Do I exaggerate? My doctor friend, employed by our local hospital, offered this confessional, quote, We received an email stating if we brought up concerns about the vaccine or were less than enthusiastic about encouraging each patient to get it, we would be subject to termination, unquote. He's a pediatrician. Meanwhile, back on the farm, in a strident appeal published in the British Medical Journal, a group of doctors cogently laid out the case against vaccine mandates as it regards children by saying, quote, for young age groups in whom COVID-related morbidity and mortality is low, and for those who have had COVID-19 infection already and appear to have longstanding immunological memory, that's a tough word. The harms of taking a vaccine are almost certain to outweigh the benefits of the individual. And the goal of reducing transmission to other people at higher risk has not been demonstrated securely, unquote. Meanwhile, reports from inside the CDC and FDA indicate low morale and cognitive dissonance as senior scientists realize these agencies are prioritizing politics over public health. And the CDC now admits serious shortcomings and announces a restructuring. Coda. This is not about red state versus blue state. This is not even a broader discussion about vaccines in general. I grew up receiving all required vaccinations. When my father was stuck in a nursing home with Alzheimer's, I was adamant that he received the vaccine and I would make that same decision again today. And my goal is not to stoke the fires of the outrage machine so that my tribe can become more indignant about what they are doing to us. My intention is to have an honest, patient-centered examination of this situation and to allow that discussion to illuminate larger issues of bioethics, autonomy, collusion, greed, censorship, and freedom of information. I'm not asking that you agree with my position, but only to be aware of all facets of the issue. To my mind, this is about freedom. This is about honesty and transparency. And most importantly, in the end, this is about people, real individual human beings trying to live their best lives for a brief time here on planet Earth. We deserve to know the truth, and we deserve to have our truth acknowledged like this poignant story of this vaccine immunologist who herself became a victim of vaccine injury, Link included. I began this journey as a friend with a heavy heart. I have ended as a doctor with a troubled conscience, but I have hope. Quote, then you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, unquote. John 8.32. Your partner in health, Dr. Turner. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. To read the full article and find all the links from the reading, go to Health and Wellness with Dr. Turner on Substack. Thank you, Base Campers, and we'll see you around the fire next week. If you find value in our show and wish to show us some love, we are now making that very easy to do. You simply go to www.basecampformen.com and click on Donate Support Basecamp. You'll find an easy way to make either monthly donations for as little as $5 a month, or you can donate just once. We love the monthly donation and hope to build this up over the coming months, but any show of support is greatly appreciated, honestly. Thank you for your support and for helping to keep Basecamp as a resource on your hero's journey. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Men, good luck in all your endeavors and good luck on your hero's journey. This is Tony Rezac and you're listening to Basecamp for Men.